All right, good morning. My name's Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. I almost backed into that table. It's not usually there. Um, hey, uh, I want to say a couple of things that you don't know um, is that Jennifer stepped in at the 11th hour and 57th minute. Uh, Krista Lyman was the one who had prepared to sing this morning, but has the uh, voice of a very large saxophone player in New Orleans right now. And so, uh, and so she was unable to go. So Jennifer just learned that song just like uh, this morning. And so uh, I, I deeply, I want to say this by way of saying this, I deeply appreciate all who serve here and all who are willing to step in whenever someone falls down and can't, can't do what it was they were supposed to do. Um, and so we have a number of volunteers that do a lot of stuff that you don't necessarily see. For instance, how do you think these chairs got to where they are? We don't, I wish there were little elves. I do. I would be okay with that, uh, that put them all out. But real people put these chairs out and real people take them up and real people set all this stuff up every single week. And that's uh, an important service to us because we couldn't do this without it, right? And so for those of you who are beginning to get involved here at Christ Community, we could use your help in that regard. And I know that doesn't take a ton of brain power to put out a chair, and that's good, right? And so, uh, but, it, but it does help us tremendously. And so if you have been thinking about a way that you might could serve us, the local church, uh, this is, while it may seem like a small way, it's huge. It, it affords us the ability to do what we do every single week. So if you're not currently serving somewhere and are looking for something to do, please come and talk to Jack Lane, who's in charge of setup. Um, if you'd like to help run sound and you have an ear for that, um, that would be great. Or if you'd like to help run the slides, then please talk to Josh. If you have a, a legitimate musical gift, we would love to see you get involved with that as well. Also talk to Josh about that as well. So, um, but anyway, thank you to all of the volunteers who make this happen every single week. I deeply appreciate the effort and energy that they put into it. That being said, um, I want to pray for our children because we're going to dismiss K through second grade, which means we also have a whole bunch of volunteers who serve in our children's ministry. And if that's something that you would be interested in, uh, two things would have to happen for you to be involved in our children's ministry. You have to pass a background check. That's just fair, I think, right? Um, and you also have to be a member here at Christ Community Church. So if you're not currently a member and are interested in the membership process, see me. We've changed it some. It will no longer, at this point, be a classroom-type deal, so that gives us a lot more flexibility. Um, and we begin the discipleship relationship process straight away. So uh, the elders, uh, depending on who's available, would, would meet with you either in your home, coffee shop, wherever is convenient, uh, to begin to get to know you. And so you get to know who we are as a church, and we all figure out if that's a good fit for the two of us. And so um, if you're interested in that, I'm the one you would need to talk to about that. But I want to pray for our children, and then we'll dismiss them. Father, thank you um, for the deposit that you've given us. May we never take it lightly. May we never see them as a burden. You have richly blessed us with many, uh, many children through a variety of means. And you continue to do so. Um, you continue to evidence your graciousness to us through this. May we honor that graciousness. May we um, love our children in word and in deed. May we pray for them often. May we get to know them by name. May we care for their souls in the way that you have cared for ours. And we pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. <clears throat> so we're continuing our journey through the passion of Christ in Luke this morning. And we're, um, it is interesting that it is, it is Palm Sunday. And yet we're going to talk about the crucifixion and death. Usually that's reserved for a Good Friday 
series, but as you see, we are tabernacling, and uh, we don't have a place that we could use on a Friday night to be able to do a Good Friday service, and I do want to encourage you to go somewhere and participate in a Good Friday service because I find it to be a very meaningful time and a very meaningful thing to do as you approach Easter and are reminded of the great weight and cost of our redemption. Um, And so this morning we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 23 verses um, uh, 26 through 49. And so as, as we approach that, I want to remind us of the key things that we've been focusing on in this particular sermon series, one of which is the sovereignty of God. Now, we're going to see this morning that there is no greater evidence and display of the sovereignty of God than the crucifixion and death of Christ. Now, you may say, well, wait a minute. That seems like he was just trying to kind of work around what evil had planned to do. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, what we're going to see from this passage this morning is the Old Testament is filled with the the prophetic uh, word about the crucifixion itself. Genesis 3.15, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and on and on and on. In fact, everything preceding this particular passage is essentially arcing toward what we will see in this passage. And is telling this particular story of redemption. And so, masterfully, what God does is he takes what is essentially the most evil and heinous event in all of history. Now, let me pause for a second, because if you're anything like me, you just thought, that's not, that's just not true. Just because you kill one innocent guy, that's not really the most evil and heinous act in all of history. Now, is it? Now, compare it to the Holocaust, or as some people refer to the current abortion issue in our country, which is the American Holocaust, or, or any other sort of, of situation where innocence is lost violently and brutally, you might would say, how is this event with Christ on the cross somehow more heinous and evil than that? Well, I can say that because this is the Creator's Son who was sent to save us. And in, you gotta, what you got to understand is those who crucified him understood exactly who he was. Did the demons not know who he was? What does the scriptural testimony tell us? What did they do? They believed and trembled. And you remember, if you've read earlier on, anytime he would encounter someone who was demon-possessed, the demon would beg him to do something different with him than what he thought he might do. So what evil thought, what Satan thought, what the powers of darkness thought is if you get rid of the one son, then whoever usurped him becomes what? King. Get rid of the one son. Now you remember the parable of the the vineyard where he sends servants and they beat them up and cast them out and finally he sends his son. And what did they think they were doing by killing him? Winning the vineyard. So what you got to understand is this isn't just the death of an ordinary innocent man. This is the death of the very Son of God whom he sent for the purpose of redeeming all that was his. And by crucifying him, it is there and, if we are not careful, our mocking cry that says, no, we don't want the means of grace that you offer. We want the means of grace that we would demand and earn for ourselves. We want the salvation that we can control. So God in his grand sovereignty takes the very thing that evil thought it was accomplishing and turns it back in on itself 
to level it eternally. What a beautiful and masterful stroke by the sovereignty of our God. We also have been looking at the humanity of Christ himself. And that, and that in his humanity, um, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he was the true prophet, the high priest, and the Davidic king. And we're going to see that again on display, even as he is being tortured and killed. He will display it probably most beautifully, more than he has done at any other time in his life. He will show himself to be prophetic. He will show himself to be the true high priest in his darkest hour. And he will show himself to be the Davidic king who reigns at the right hand of the Father even now. Amen. And so we will see in his humanity, as it is fully on display, evidence that he truly is the Son of God. So... Uh, The thing that we want to walk away from uh, this morning with is that Jesus Christ, in his humiliation, in crucifixion and death, purchases eternal dignity for all God's daughters and sons. Now, why would I use that term dignity and not say just salvation? Because it it is full restoration that he's purchasing, which we have talked about is inherent within salvation. But we in our culture, for some reason, have truncated the word salvation to only mean a singular event in time as opposed to the whole story. So here on the cross, Christ loses in his dereliction all glory and dignity as the world would understand it for the purpose of purchasing for us All glory and dignity do the sons and daughters of the Most High God. What a beautiful, beautiful thing for him to do on our behalf. And that's what I want us to see here this morning more than anything else. And as we open this sermon, I would ask you the question, how do you respond to being humiliated? How many of you, not show of hands, that would be weird. Um, how, how many of you have ever truly been humiliated? Now, many of us really haven't, but some of you really have. You have been significantly humiliated by someone probably that you love because humiliation tends to imply that the person humiliating you has some sort of power over you, some sort of weight that causes the event to be even darker than it could be under different circumstances. How do you respond when you see someone else being humiliated? I mean, what what do you feel within you as you happen, if if by some stroke of some sort of luck or weird um, intuition within you that longs to, like, look at the car crash as you go by and rubberneck, you can't help yourself, you watch some video of ISIS beheading someone or setting the Jordanian pilot on fire or any of those things that have been prevalent in our news, how did you feel? What went on in your heart and your soul as that was taking place? Were you okay with it? Was it just, did it have no effect on you whatsoever? See, we have a very visceral response to particular types of, of humiliation. Um, my, my, uh, my grandfather um, was a Marine, and he was a Marine that hit the beaches of Iwo Jima. And he lied about his age to get in the Marine Corps to get off the tobacco farm that he lived on in North Carolina. And so he hit the beaches of Iwo Jima at age 17. 
Okay? And so my grandfather had this really interesting thing about honor and humiliation that he just would not tolerate certain things. He was the nicest guy on the planet under all circumstances until any form of humiliation took place. He worked predominantly at the Waffle House as a general manager for a number of years, managing several Waffle Houses for a man named Raymond Johnson. And one day, there was a man who was on the telephone, and if for those, and it's so weird for me to, for there to be objects that half of the audience probably have no earthly idea what I'm talking about. But if you remember the old uh, dial-up telephone, the handle was pretty heavy, if you, if you remember. It had a little weight to it. And so he, this guy was on the office phone in the Waffle House, and he was cussing somebody out, and my grandmother happened to be sitting next to him. He's humiliating someone on the phone, and my grandmother could overhear it. And my grandfather told him, he said, now listen, you need to hush your mouth and get off the phone because it was starting to stir his sense of ire. And so this guy just dismissed him and, and went back to humiliating whoever he was talking to. So my grandfather put his hand on his shoulder, and as the guy spun around, he took the phone and broke my grandfather's nose. Which most normal men, I would think, would probably kind of be the end of it. Not my grandfather who had been on the beaches of Iwo Jima as a 17-year-old, he chased this man down. And I'm not advocating this, by the way, so you young kids don't hear me say, all right? So this is on tape that I am advocating you not do this. So if someone hears it wrongly, I'm going to make you listen to the tape, and we'll go back and, you know. But he chased him down, found a brick, and almost beat this guy to death. And then when he went to court, was held in contempt of court because he said, if I ever see him again, I'm going to finish the job. Again, what was stirred within him was this sense of ire toward any form of humiliation at all. It was just, and he kind of passed that along to me as well. Don't be scared. I'm not, I don't, there's no bricks around. But, but I, I, I do, I have this weird sense whenever I see someone being humiliated for any reason, I move toward it, not away from it. It's got me in trouble a few times, and that's okay. Um, but, but there's a sense at which you know this too. You can't bear to look at it either, nor do you want to tolerate it. And so my hope this morning as we look at Christ and his final dereliction and humiliation is that we would not walk out of here this morning totally unaffected by what we will see. Because if we can, if we can look on this and it doesn't mean anything to us, then there's something deep within our heart that has to be questioned, I think. So... Um, The Shorter Catechism, question 27, says this, uh, because Christ, what I want you to know and understand is that Christ's humiliation is germane or tied to his humanity. There is no humiliation in his divinity. Everybody understand that? He has has never, ever, one ounce of his divinity ever humiliated. However, in the fullness of his humanity, it was all humiliation by comparison. Listen to what the Shorter Catechism question 27, which asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Take note of the answer. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So it's important that we understand that the whole of the humanity of Christ, as it is comparative to his divinity and who he really was, was humiliating. And that the pinnacle of that humiliation was his crucifixion on a cross, because cursed is anyone who does what? Hangs on a tree. He was utterly accursed. 
He was utterly broken by the wrath of God and the weight of our sin, and in that dereliction was crushed. And this is the, the pinnacle of his humiliation in his humanity. But it is also the pinnacle at which he displays his, his, his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And that's what I want us to be able to see this morning, particularly as we will celebrate, because of that, the table that is now available to us to strengthen our faith and to help us as we continue in our some level of humiliation between the now and the not yet. All right, let's turn to God's word this morning, Luke 23, verses 26 through 31. If you would uh, hear God's word this morning and, and let, it, let it sink deep into us. And it says, And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now, let me tell you real quick, Simon the Cyrene, Cyrene is near Tripoli in Lebanon, so he would have been Lebanese, uh, as, as we understand that now. And he was probably Jewish and had come in to celebrate the Passover and may or may not have been a disciple of Christ at this point. But according to Mark 15, 21, we come to know his children's names. And why do you think the church would know the names of the children of Simon of Cyrene? Because he had, in fact, become a believer. Now, whether this event led to that or not, I don't know, and it doesn't necessarily tell us, but what a beautiful thing that even in this darkest moment, the one who is grabbed to carry the further humiliation of Christ becomes a member and his family of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, why, you might ask, wouldn't a Roman soldier have carried it? Well, because it was such an emblem of shame and disgust to a Roman soldier, he would have never touched it. That's why they grabbed someone from the side and said, no, you carry it. Now, the other question you should ask is, wait, what's going on here that Christ is no longer carrying his own cross? Is it that the Spirit has departed from him and he is just an, a weak earthling like us? Is it that he is failing in some part of his duty? No, he, this is a, a wonderful display or a very painful display of the fullness of his humanity. He, remember, up to this point, what's been going on? He's been, he's been eating omelets and hanging out at the brunch table at, uh, at, at Pilate's house, right? Having a good time, just kind of hanging out. They're fattening him up for the slaughter, right? No, what, what had been happening? When's the last time that Christ had known any sort of rest? It's been a while. What we do know is that from the garden forward, he was up all night. He's been being questioned. If you remember, he was mocked. He was slapped and told, prophesy who hit you, prophet. Remember, he had by this point probably been scourged at least twice, according to other texts. He has been standing the whole time. He has been just completely and utterly um, humiliated. And he just, for whatever reason, couldn't carry it any further. And so Simon the Cyrene gets the burden to carry to Golgotha. And then it says, verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people of women, of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So let me pause right there for just a second. Now, one of the things that we may not be aware of culturally is that in Jerusalem there were those who were professional mourners. 
That means that any time a Jew was crucified or brought to trial to be put to death, they would have gone into action, whether they knew him or not, to wail and moan and cry out for yet another son of Jerusalem to fall at the sword of Rome. And so they would have also probably been the ones who would have offered the narcotic wine or mixture that would have helped ease the suffering of one of the sons of Jerusalem. And so here they are. They're not disciples, and we're going to see in just a moment why that's, that's, that's a, the best possibility, that they are not disciples of Jesus, but they're just part of this professional crowd of mourners who have come in because yet another son will fall. And then verse 28 says, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to, this, to these mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things, for if they do these things when the wood is green... What will happen when it is dry? Now, the fact he refers to them as the daughters of Jerusalem indicates that they were not disciples of his. And that this is an Old Testament way of referring to women as representative for an entire nation. And so, notice what Jesus does. He says, do not mourn for me. You need to mourn for yourselves. And notice... The, the, the things that he uses, he says, even that which is most blessed in all of creation. Think about what was, what was an indicator of the vibrancy of a Jewish woman. What would it have been? Her ability to bear children. Barrenness was a sign of, in some measure, cursedness or even something that even if it, if it wasn't legitimately a curse, it still felt like a curse given the way that their society viewed the ability to bear children. We still feel that today in some sense, do we not? And so here he is saying that that will be reversed. It will actually be said that you are most blessed of all if you are barren and would not bear children into this judgment that is coming. Now, is he being ungracious or gracious in doing this? I would propose he's being incredibly gracious because the first judgment that is going to fall is not on Jerusalem. Is it? In fact, if you know the history, the first aspects of judgment will not fall until 70 A.D., really. The first judgment that is going to fall is on the behalf of the elect upon Christ himself. So he is warning them prophetically that what you need to be doing is not mourning for me at all because I am not actually going to suffer what you think I'm going to suffer because the sovereign God has ordained and orchestrated these things such that redemption is going to come. Instead, he calls for them to focus in upon their own hearts and their own selves, which is actually harkens back to Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. And maybe that would have come to their minds as he said these things. He's also quoting Hosea 10.8 when he says, May creation itself cover us up in shame. Now think about that for a second. They're calling for creation to fall on them instead of asking for the covering of the righteousness that uniquely comes by Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. Why would they want something to cover them that cannot eternally change anything? 
They think if they hide under the rubble of mountains that somehow, some way, their unrighteousness is so hidden that it would not be charged. Does darkness really cover the things that we do? No, it doesn't. And he goes on to give them a parable when he says, if they would do this, to the wood when it is green. Meaning, if Rome would persecute and destroy an innocent man, how much more do you think Rome is going to do to you who are actually guilty? How vicious will the sword fall upon you? So, he is serving in his office of the true prophet, and he's doing it in great grace. He's warning the daughters of Jerusalem one last time. This is one last lament for Jerusalem because he loved her so much. And he's calling for her to repent and recognize what's happening. Listen to what Norval Geldenheis from the Gospel of Luke says. And remember, Norval's a good Dutch theologian. You can probably tell by his name. He says this, because he being Christ knows what terrible judgments will ere long visit Jerusalem. He expresses in these words his unfathomable pity for the doomed people. It is beautiful and good that they should manifest such tenderness and sympathy with him on his way to the cross. But they are unable to see things in the right perspective and do not realize what is awaiting them and their people if they should persist in unbelief. It is far more urgent that they should weep for themselves and their children. Even at this late hour, such tears may lead to repentance and avert the approaching doom. The thing I would ask you as the scene is beginning to unfold is what, it, what is it that grieves you most? Are, are you grieved at the humiliating journey to death that Christ has been on to this juncture? Are you grieved by how Pilate dealt with him? Are you grieved by how Caiaphas dealt with him? Are you grieved by how Peter denied him? What is it that grieves you? Or are you most grieved by your sin that required it all? Are you most grieved that it is the things that you have done or couldn't do or wouldn't do or will do that required injustice for an innocent man to die, a perfect man to die, and not just any innocent or perfect man, but the very Son of God to be brutalized so that you could go free? Am I encouraging us to be navel-gazers and to focus back in upon our darkness? No. This that I am speaking of is no worm theology at all. What I am encouraging you to do is remember. Remember the cost for the purpose of being able to gaze longer and fuller upon the Savior who has endured all of this so that you would never taste of one ounce of this type of humiliation ever in all of eternity. Let's turn back to the text. Verse 32, we will see him begin a priestly intercession. 
The text says two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Again, this is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53, 12. And then as, as Christ himself spoke in Luke twenty two thirty seven. Now, notice that they're saying, they're making a comment. Why do you think they would crucify thieves on either side of the king of the Jews? What are they saying he is? He's just a common thief as far as they're concerned. And what's interesting is remember how the sons of thunder asked if they could have this position. What do you think they're thinking now as they look at his right hand and his left hand, and they see these others who are being crucified along with him. And so there begins a dialogue even in the midst of this brokenness. And as Christ is being crucified, he says this, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now there's some academic debate as to who is he speaking of? Is he just speaking of the Romans? Because again, as you look at Pilate's interchange, he really wanted to let Christ go, didn't he? He really didn't want to do what the Jews were begging for him to do because he, he, he saw it, something's not right here. This isn't the, this is just something's not right in the situation. He went back several times. He tried to, he tried, maybe if I just beat him and, and put a crown of thorns on him and just mock him, maybe that'll satisfy him and get him to shut up. And it didn't, did it? It didn't change anything at all. They kept crying louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. And so he did. And so here we have. Christ asking for those who had no earthly idea what they understood, not just the Romans either that I would posit. I would also say he is calling out for forgiveness of the people he loved. Now, how in the world can I say that? Well, what does Paul say? How does Paul pick this up in Romans 9? Remember what Paul says about his own salvation, that he would gladly give up if even one of his brothers, a Jew, would come to know Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of passion. I don't feel that strongly. Now, maybe that disqualifies me and you guys find someone else, but he's, going, he's a liar if he tells you. No, but, I mean, that's just not normal for us to say, I would give up my salvation for someone else. But Paul had that kind of love, as does God. Remember what he says all throughout Romans 9 through 11. Now, there's some tough things that he says, but ultimately what he's saying is, is that the Lord is being patient the Lord is being kind so that the chosen ones from way back in the Old Testament, that little, that little nation that he formed by his own hands, that they would come. So I believe that Christ is even saying here of the ones that could not be swept away in national judgment that is coming. Because remember, even in AD 70, was the Jewish people wiped off the face of the map? No, judgment was not full there. Were the Jewish people wiped off the face of the world in the 30s and 40s? No. Do you think they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth sometime soon as those around them position themselves to destroy them? I don't believe so either. And so what we see is that prayer continuing to be answered. 
that the Lord continues to forgive those who know not at all what they're doing. And that includes you and I, doesn't it? How many of you knew what you were doing in your unbelief? How many of you, if you can even remember your unbelief, those of you who had a season of unbelief of any kind, how many of you knew exactly what you were doing? You couldn't have. You couldn't have. So we see Christ being so priestly even as he is being physically destroyed. And he goes on to say, after he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So think about this. Here he is praying for his enemies. And in the shadow of that glorious cross, they are casting lots. Now this fulfills Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which said that they would cast lots for his clothing. And again and again and again, what we're seeing is God responding and evidencing his sovereign control of all of these things, things he had written about thousands of years before or a thousand years or so before. And so again and again, what we're seeing is these events point to and anybody who was watching that knew their Bible at all would know this is not the end. In fact, this is the beginning the beginning of something glorious and beautiful and redemptive. And this is not the road to the cross. No, this, this is the road to reconciliation where all things will one day be made new. And so as they cast lots for his clothing in the shadow of that glorious cross, the people began to gather around. It says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Why do you think they would say those things? What worldly leader do you know of if you had Christ's power would endure such humiliation? If you had the ability to call down a legion of angels or fire from heaven and somebody was utterly humiliating you, what would you do? You would save yourself, which is why you aren't Jesus and I'm not either. See, they were operating under the premise that if he was a truly a leader, then what he would do is he would destroy everyone in his wake. And yet he was doing quite the opposite, wasn't he? He was enduring the shame of the cross that was set before, for the joy that was set before him for those who would be redeemed and saved. Amen? See, he, would, he didn't do what we think people ought to do in leadership who have power. He didn't wield it in the way that we would. In fact, he did quite the opposite, and gloriously so, amen? But he didn't say, well, I'm about done with this junk. And I'd ask if that cup could pass from me. And, and it didn't look like God was going to answer, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm coming off this cross, and you guys better run. It's not what he did. It's what you and I would do. And that's what they thought he should have done. But here's what's really ironic. Is he does exactly what they asked him to do. On the third day, when he came gloriously from the tomb, Redeemed, free from the sin that he had carried to the grave, free from death. And what, what did it matter to them? Did the resurrection make them believe anymore? 
No. See, what we see here is the true barrier, which is rampant and radical unbelief. It's not just a passive or neutral unbelief. No, it is it is known, it is, it is active, it is, I will not believe, I don't care if you rise from the dead, I will not believe. I don't care if you come down from that cross and do what I say, I'm not going to do what you say. And that's how deep the root is in us, isn't it? Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this particular instance. And it's from a track that he wrote called Christ and the Two Thieves. And so I'm about to track bomb all of you, just so you know. He says, now, have I not a right to say that Christ is able to save the uttermost, all of them that come unto God by him? Behold the proof of it. If ever a sinner was too far gone to be saved, it was this thief. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, in verse 38, after it says that there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews, which was, by the way, Pilate's jab at the Jews to make them understand and know, no, you don't get to select your king. I have selected him for you, and I have killed him. Now you will remain under the thumb of Rome as you were told, and you will not come at me anymore with this nonsense. And then it goes on. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus One of the few times in Scripture that Jesus is referred to by his personal name, interestingly. And it is this thief who does it. He says, Jesus, remember me. When he goes where? When you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Going back to Raoul's quote, he says, If ever a sinner was too far gone to be saved, it was this thief. How much did this thief give to the church? What was his tithe record, if you had to guess? I can tell you, zero. Now listen, I'm not saying. Don't don't say, I'm going to play the tape back for you. If I hear any one of you try to say, Cameron said, you ain't got to give squat to the church. Thief made it in, surely I will too. But he gave nothing to the church. He wasn't baptized. He took no Lord's Supper at this moment. He didn't serve in the children's ministry. He didn't set up any chairs. He didn't put up any signs. He didn't go to any banquets. He didn't do anything except say, I I am worthy of the condemnation that is befalling me. And he, he is not. And... Listen to his confession. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. What, does he think, what do you think he's confessing? He's saying you are the king. And you are inheriting your kingdom even now despite what it looks like. And I want to be there. And Christ says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, paradise here is a Persian word for garden. Hmm, interesting term. It also shows up again in Revelation chapter 2. 
when it speaks of where the tree of life is located. Interesting. That Christ would say, you will be with me in the garden that is prepared for the righteous. You who have not tithed to the church or been baptized or confessed to the five points of Calvinism that are yet to come, by the way, at this point historically, or any of this stuff, you've made the right confession. And you will be with me in that kingdom. Beautiful. Beautiful that Jesus the high priest in this moment is not more considerate of himself and would save to the uttermost. Listen to how J.C. Rowell continues. He says, Behold the proof of it. If a sinner was ever too far gone to be saved, it was this thief. Yet he was plucked as a brand from the fire. Have I not a right to say Christ will receive any poor sinner who comes to him with a prayer of faith and cast out none? Behold the proof of it. If ever there was one that seemed too bad to be received, this, this was the man. Yet the door of mercy was wide open even for him. Have I not a right to say, by grace you may be saved through faith, not of works? Fear not, only believe. Behold the proof of it. This thief was never baptized. He belonged to no visible church. He never received the Lord's Supper. He never did any work for Christ. He never gave any money to Christ's cause. But he had faith, and so he was saved. So what is it that is the true barrier to salvation for us? It is our radical and wanton unbelief. There is no hook for which we can get off of with this. And you know it. You know it in your own heart and soul. You know it as you look at things and as you engage things and as you refuse to do things and as you, as you continue to be insolent in your rebellion. You know this is true. And yet, by grace you are saved by faith alone through no work that you could commit. You cannot make God love you. You cannot make him love you more with the more that you might do. But what you can do is learn to love him more for all that he has done for you as gloriously displayed in this moment. So here we see the high priest engaging in his salvific, redemptive function even as he is in the height of his suffering. Can you imagine hanging upon a cross, enduring what he endured physically? And usually in sermons like this, we go into great detail about all the stuff that's happened to him, but I haven't for a reason because Luke didn't. There's a, a huge medical article written about what crucifixion would have been like, and I'm not saying that's not important, and you'll probably hear that on Good Friday. It's usually when you hear all of the details. But what I want you to notice is not just Luke, but the other gospel authors as well, don't seem to spend a whole lot of time on the actual physical suffering of Christ. The majority of it is spent instead on his spiritual suffering, and his ministry even from the cross. Would that we would spend an equal amount of time on it as well. Now let's see that the king is received. Verse 44 says this, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And this would have been roughly from 12 to 3. Now why is it that you think darkness had fallen on the whole land? What's happening here? 
Well, if you know anything about your Old Testament, what you recognize from Joel 2 and Amos 8 is that this is judgment falling. That when darkness comes upon the land, when creation turns her face away, judgment is falling. Now here's the good news. For whom did judgment fall? The sons and daughters of the Most High God. Judgment was falling upon Christ himself on behalf of the sons and daughters of God, the whole of the elect. Why is that good news to you and I? Because if judgment has already fallen, what have you to fear? As sons and daughters of the Most High God, what have you to fear in coming before him ever? Nothing. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5 as we talked about justification. That justification opened up the way that we could come boldly before God to stand in the grace that he has given us. Remember what the author of Hebrews says. That you would boldly come before the throne of grace to receive exactly what you need in a time of trouble. Let me ask you, Christian, when you falter, when you fall, when you mess up, which way do you run? Most of you run away from the throne myself included. And yet that is not the direction that we should ever go for all that Christ has done for us. We should never fear the fellowship of the saints because we're worried about what they're going to find out about us. You have nothing to fear if you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. Why do we spend so much time so neurotic about what has been made so clear? And it goes on. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This has two potential meanings and I think it means both. One is that the Holy of Holies is being rent and God is coming out to be with his people. But he's also departing from the temple because he is declaring it Ichabod because it will fall in 70 AD. It's the beginning of judgment even upon Jerusalem. And so now God says, I will be with my people. Think about the verses that say, I come to make my God and I come to make a home within you. That God is dwelling with us even now. This is the reason that we do a prayer of invocation. Not that we would invite God into our midst. Do we need to invite God anywhere? No, he is here already. The question is whether or not you know. He's present in this table. He's present in the word. He's present in our prayers. He's present in and among us. What a beautiful thing. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now here he is quoting from Psalm 31.5. And notice he calls him Father again. Notice that he gently grants to the one who said, no, the cup will not pass from you. You will drink it to the dregs. He commits gently his spirit into that father's hands. Now, how is it that he can do that? Because it is finished. Judgment has fallen. It's over. 
His work is completed. And now he, the king, is being received. And having said this, he breathed his last. 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, listen to what he does. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home beating their breasts and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So here under darkness where creation turns away and the father also has turned his face away as the son is suffering under the weight of wrath and condemnation on behalf of the sins past, present, and future of the elect. We now have glorious day beginning to dawn as Christ says Not in this text, but in another. It is finished, but here we have the tender words of Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The final offering to the one that he knew loved him and loved us so much. Listen to what, and this, now Tim puts this on the front of his book, so it's Timothy Keller, just straight away. I don't know him that well, I can't just call him Tim. So Timothy Keller, in Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. Here we see the ultimate strength. A God who is strong enough to voluntarily become weak and plunge himself into vulnerability and darkness out of love for us. And here we see the greatest possible glory. The willingness to lay aside all of his glory out of love for us. Now, all of that is a reference to Christ's humanity. Don't get tangled up in, can God lay his glory aside? No, God cannot lay his glory aside. But Jesus, in his humanity, laid his glory aside, his divinity, such that it would be taken up again and given back to him. If You, you can see this in the high priestly prayer in John 17 when he says, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before all this. So, what is it that you confess as a result of the crucifixion and death of Christ? Because that event has a unique formation of what it is you say you believe. So, based on Christ's crucifixion and his death, what do you confess? Now, we have an opportunity this morning in the Lord's table to make that confession. How did this table come to us? Remember, back in the Passover, when we began this journey, in the Passion of Christ, in the Gospel of Luke, remember, how did it start? It started with the Passover, the last one, and the first Lord's Supper, in which Christ took common elements and declared great sacredness over them. And he changed the meaning of Passover, or better said, he brought to full fulfillment the meaning of Passover. And he said to his disciples at that time, and he's saying the same to us, this bread, in our case, quasi-styrofoam wafer, is my body. And it's not just any body, it is mine, and it will be broken for you. Why do we need him to be broken for us? We need him to be broken for us because we couldn't bear the brokenness necessary called for because of our own sin. 
He was broken under the weight of our sin. His body was broken because of the very wrath of God that comes as a result that God would be just. And then he took the cup and he said, this, this isn't just wine or in our case juice. This is my blood, which is representative of the new covenant the fulfilled old covenant, the covenant of grace that is now no longer an echo, no longer a shadow, but is gloriously blazing bright in all that I am and that will come at the crucifixion in its reality. And I'm giving it to you to do in remembrance of me. Now, are we to do what the daughters of Jerusalem did and weep for Christ's crucifixion? No, we are to celebrate it, having wept over our own sin, having wept over our own fallenness, celebrating that Christ makes that no more. So this table has uniquely been given to us as that reminder, as that opportunity to, on a regular basis, have the word made visible So on a regular basis, celebrate and confess exactly what we believe comes because of the crucifixion and very death of our Christ. Now, is it that this wafer is the actual body and blood of Christ? Well, no. Christ can't be spread all over the universe. He has a physical body that is where? He's been received as a king. It's sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us even now. It is not splattered all over these things. But is it just a memorial? Well, no, it's not just that either. Though it's going to taste like it in some respects. No, this is something that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes in and uses to nourish and strengthen our faith. Now let me ask you, Christ Community Church, beloved of Christ, how strong is your faith this morning? How well are you? Are you so well that you don't need these elements this morning? We all need them, don't we? We all need them to be reminded of exactly what it was that we confess about the cross and the death of Christ. If you would, listen to what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Let me read that again because I think think sometimes we get a distortion that says, God loves you exactly as you are. He just just loves you right where you are, you old filthy, stinking sinner. He just just tossles your hair and he laughs at all the goofy stuff you do because it's cute. No, it's costly. And no, he doesn't. And he is not content to leave you as you are. Now, he receives you as you are so that you will not remain as you are. And this table is further evidence of that ongoing, sanctifying transformation further into the image of Christ. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to stick with the brokenness. I don't want to just continue in my ignorance staring through the glass at least half darkly if not more so in my case some days. He goes on to say, 
Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor. He must labor. Let me say that again. He must labor to make us lovable, not us who labor to make ourselves lovable. So in this table, what we have... And in this sermon, what we have is that Christ's humiliation and his crucifixion and death prophetically warns us to first examine ourselves, to be concerned for our own condition as we, as we come to the table, which is one of the reasons that we send out the missive that we send out early in the week to help you think through and prepare yourselves. Hopefully you've prepared yourselves, that you took this seriously enough, that you took some time to think through, where am I? Now, Does anybody come to the table perfect? Let me see your hand, because we need to talk. No, not not in this temporal existence. Now, you might could argue theologically, no, but before Christ I am, and yes, saint, you are right. You are perfect before him in the righteousness of Christ. But not as you come to this table in this time. So you need it. So nobody's coming perfect, and so maybe you say, I... I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare. You'll have a little bit of time to prepare. Because once we administer the elements, you'll hold them and we'll take them together as a family. Take that time to just honor the Lord by saying, Father, I'm, I'm sorry for the cost. I'm sorry for what I have done to add to the cost and the humiliation of Christ. The other thing that the table does is it supplies evidence of Christ the high priest's means of redemption regardless of our current condition. How beautiful the elements of this table because it says to us that I am changing you. I have pursued you. I am your redemption. And lastly, this table is a table that is set up for us to eat in the wilderness between the now and the not yet, confessing that our king reigns even now and that he is coming again. And he's not confused about anything. And he is the instrument of the sovereign God to bring about our redemption. Amen? So if the elders would come forward, <clears throat> we need to keep those things in mind as we, as we think about these elements and we receive them this morning. So like I said, if this is your first time with us, <clears throat> a couple of words of instruction. As I've said, it's good to have examined yourself. 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we need to examine ourselves. And part of that examination is, are you harboring any unforgiveness towards someone else? Because think about it. How is it that you could receive a grace and a forgiveness so free if you yourself are withholding it from anyone else? Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. So listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Just because you are at odds with someone else does not mean you cannot take of the table so long as you are doing what you can to offer forgiveness. Because if you're at odds with someone else, you're doing what you can to offer forgiveness, what's going to strengthen you more than the table? Don't not take because you think everything must be perfect before you can take. If you're doing what you can, eat heartily knowing that you needed it. Now, if you're not a believer, this isn't going to do you any good. In fact, it's going to confuse you some. Let it pass you by. Let it pass over you. But I do want to warn you, 
I wouldn't let it pass too many times before I dealt with my unbelief. Because it is costly to not be able to eat of all that this table means and to dine on that which is going to nourish us for an eternity. Amen? So, the other person who would not be able to take of this table is if you are currently under church discipline at your local church for some reason. And I may not know that, and I'm not going to slap it out of your hand or do anything weird. It's your conscience that has to be dealt with. But if you are under discipline, you've been barred from the table, do your soul and yourself a favor, let it pass by for now, and maybe come talk to us about whether or not, how that needs to be reconciled. Because I don't want, again, for you, I don't want you to let it pass too many times. Because even though you may be under discipline, that discipline is for the purpose of reconciliation. The Christ who died for you, loves you, and wants you restored. And so, as we come to this table, um, I want to uh, take time to pray for both elements. We'll start with the bread first. For some of you, you'll notice there is this hunk of bread. Hopefully, it'll make its way on both sides. If you'd rather tear a chunk off of this instead of eat one of the little discs that get shot from toy guns, um, you can do that. Okay, feel free to do that, and uh, but remember what it is. It is Christ's body that is broken for us. It is the blood that is shed for us, and so I want to pray for these elements. And then, like I said, once you receive the elements, hold them. We'll take them together as a family. And in fact, what I would like to do this time, that's slightly different, is for you to hold both elements. Now we're not going to do intentions. Don't get nervous. I just would rather us hold both elements and take them both at the same time because of all that Christ did in the cross. It was one act completed. Amen? All right. Father, thank you for these elements. Though they are common, though they are not as nourishing as you are, God, we know that your spirit imbues them and infuses them and brings us before the very throne of grace in them so that we would be nourished and strengthened. I pray that the bread and the juice would serve to nourish your people in spirit and in truth, that it would help us to seek the forgiveness that you have so graciously given to us, to, to pursue reconciliation and redemption with others, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, that this table would be meaningful, and that it wouldn't be just something that we did and forgot about by 1230. God, use this to make us more like Christ, in Christ's name. Amen.